And I realized that I have to really take care of myself and be aware of what energy I'm bringing to my relationship and to my home, because that's going to be what's reflected back to me. Hi, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Season 2 of Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is dedicated by Chava Moravich in honor of this podcast. Thank you, Chava. And she says, this podcast resonates, teaches, uplifts, and inspires. May Hashem give you the strength to continue doing the important work that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you for making today's episode happen. If you would like to sponsor an episode or become a paying subscriber of the podcast on Patreon, please visit the link in the show notes, patreon.com slash humanandholy, or email us at humanandholy at gmail.com. In today's episode, I interview Chava Green about her journey from secular feminism to Hasidic woman, and she answers the question of the Akarisa bias. What does it mean to be the foundation of the Jewish home? On a professional level, Chava is writing her dissertation on Hasidic feminism and has interviewed so many women on their experiences in the Hasidic world. And on a personal level, she is a mother navigating her own identity. What does it mean to celebrate my femininity within my Jewish home? And what does it mean that the home is the foundation of the entire world? And how can I show up to nurture that home within my own life? My name is Kava Green. I live in Morristown, New Jersey, and I wear a lot of different hats. I'm a PhD student I'm writing my dissertation on Hasidic feminism at Emory University, and I'm in my fourth year. Wow. Tanya and I met, I interviewed her for my dissertation. And so I do that in the mornings. And then I work at the Hader locally in the afternoons. My husband and I were on Shulchas for a few years. And now we do a lot of outreach and in reach in our community hosting. And there's a Kolel here because we live near the Yeshiva. And so we're quite involved with that as well. Awesome. I just need to say that you are just such a cool person. (laughs) Okay. Just need to say that. But no, but like, I really find that your schedule is so unique. Like, you're so steeped in the religious community, and you're also doing your dissertation at Emory University. And the fact that you're doing both in one day is just like very symbolic. So, tell us a little bit about there is no one better to talk about this topic than you. (laughs) So many people grapple with this idea, so many people question what role it has in their lives. I am so excited to hear from you because you can speak to your personal experience and also all the data that you've been collecting. So tell us first, what are we going to discuss today? And then we'll get more into your personal journey and how you've come to it. Okay, perfect. So the topic we're going to discuss today is what is the Akarisa bias? And what does that mean for women to be the Akarisa bias? In a lot of the Rebbe Sichas, this concept just pops up over and over again. And in general, when he's talking to women, it will just be inserted there. 
And I struggled with this for a while in terms of my dissertation because I thought, what is the actual meaning of the Acarus bias? Because every time it's brought up, I feel like it's pointing to another topic. Like the Acarus bias was just kind of general concept. And underneath it was like all of these different things, like a woman's own Torah study or the chinuch of the children or the atmosphere in the home. I was trying to think, so what is it on its own? And I realized that's totally the wrong way to look at it. The point is, it's an encompassing concept. It's the foundation that everything else rests upon, which makes sense because a charis means a foundation of the home. Mm. I was also speaking to somebody and she said it's the ikar, the ikari can also mean the root. So the roots of it, the thing that keeps it stable. So in my research has come a bunch of times and I thought I'd just talk about two different places where the Rebbe talks about it so we can have something concrete. I love going to sources. So that's like my first thing <laughs> that I do. First place to um, look. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, because these concepts are very, I would say emotionally tied for people. It's something that I struggle with a lot. And I think that in our day and age, when you say things about women's role, it comes with, it can come with a lot of baggage. So for me, I like to just know the Rebbe's exact wording because then for me, it feels like I'm on stable ground. That's the end this. It's clear. So the first place where I was reading this is in a sikh about Yaakov and Rachel and why Yaakov is buried with the other patriarchs. And Rachel is buried somewhere totally different. And, you know, you could say that that's like a disadvantage that she wasn't buried there. Like, why is that something positive for her? So the Rebbe says that even though men and women were created to serve their creator equally, they have a different place, a different experience and what that looks like. And a, man, a man's avoda, his service of God is, in a sense, in, is begile, it's revealed. It's all these things that he does. And a woman's relationship with Judaism is something essential. So the Rebbe always says that there's an advantage to a woman's avoda, to the, her service, which I find interesting because if the Rebbe was always saying there's an advantage to men's service, I would be like a little bit miffed. So I think it's interesting that it goes the other way, but I think it's to balance things out because it seems that a man's service is a little bit better. You know, all these things are just revealed for him that he's davening and learning. And in this particular sikha, the rabbi says there could be an aspect of yeshas, of ego to that, that a woman gets to avoid. So Mm, interesting. I would say it also makes it more difficult because you don't get that ego satisfaction (laughs) (laughs) like you're like well (laughs) who's praising all of my effort you know hidden in the home okay that's the second part but so the point of this one is that what is it a carousa bias she's doing something that's internal and that's essential for everybody that's around her and so in this particular application of it Yaakov needs to be buried with the patriarchs because that's a place of revealed kedusha Rachel was buried somewhere that's in a sense, deeper than revealed Kedusha. She needs to be buried somewhere where she would be of service to her children in, for generations to come. And so the Rebbe says the reason she's buried there is because when the children went, the Jewish people went to exile, she could daven for them and cry for them, cry out to Hashem for them. And these were children that sinned and were exiled. Like we're not talking about tzaddikim, like these holy people. Rachel needed to be there because she was connected to the essence of what it means to be a Jew. And that's why Jewish identity comes from the mother. So you can see right away when I'm talking about the Karis of Ayas, it includes all of these different things. The home is just the beginning of it. But this concept really starts branching out to what does it mean to be a woman and what's our responsibility. Okay. The second one I want to talk about is that a lot of times when 
Dharma talks about Akira Sabayas. He also talks about the Pasakol Kavuda Basmalak Panima. The entire glory of the king's daughter is within, Panemius, internal. And so there's Sicham Parshas Nayach in Tavshin Nun Aleph. And the Rebbe talks about this idea of Panemius. It could be either in a makom, actual place, is within the home. It's an internal place. You know, it's private. Your home's not like being in, in work or in shul or in the street. So that's the place. But Panemius, Panema, also in terms of how you go about it, the mode. And so he says a woman has a unique connection to doing things in a panemius way with warmth and edelkite and simcha and this whole approach. That's what the kavod is that a woman has. She honors other people by doing things in a panemius way. And in that way, you affect everybody. That's the point of the Akira's advice. The responsibility is in your hands as a woman. How is your home going to look? How is it going to feel? What's the vibe of your home going to be? What's the essence of your home going to be? And how does everybody in the home take what they gain from the family and then bring it out into the world, including the woman. Oh, nice. First of all, I love that you brought in the sources. I love how you said that, that when you're looking at a source, it's like, okay, right now I'm on stable ground. And it's interesting also that you mentioned that a Karis bias was often used as a way of pointing to other topics and other identities and other roles. So there's two things I really want to explore. One is how a Karis bias shows up in your study of Hasidic feminism and how it fits in there and how and why you'd call it feminism. And then the other thing I want to talk about is your personal journey with this concept. So let's start a little less personal so that you can like get warmed up so that by the time we get to the personal, you're warm, you're flexed, you're ready to go. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about how your understanding of the Rebus perspective on Karis Abias, what it means to be the foundation of the home, how that fits into the research you're doing on what Hasidic feminism is and why you would define that as feminism when it seemingly would fly in the face of what most modern feminists are fighting for. Mm, Okay. Great question. This question makes me so uncomfortable and I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, No, it's good. I like, this is my struggle of my life. You know, like you, Mm. You said, like, let's start with the abstract and then get personal. For me, they're like so intermeshed. Like, there's really no way for me to separate them because I feel so deeply that it matters that I'm a woman and that I dig deep into what that means and I don't run away from it. Mm. And I think that a lot of my experiences with academic feminism has been the logical part of my brain just fighting that and saying, but why does it have to be that way? Or maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Or maybe the implications of what it means that I'm a woman are created by society and not real. Mm. And we should change them. And so I have like the mind and the heart battling. And in a sense, that's kind of the battle between the secular feminism and Hasidic feminism. Hasidic feminism says there is an essence. It Mm. means something that God made you as a woman and you have the ability to bring life into the world and you have unique traits and strengths that are different between men and women. And even within Hasidus, there's a notion of Hiskalavas that they intersect and are interincluded in each other. So it's not never black and white, but there is something essential about being a woman. And that's like the foundation of Hasidic feminism. The thing is, in secular feminism, you have this huge 
shift between like the radical feminists of the seventies who are like women power, let's make communes of just women and like this whole like women's thing. And then you have post-structuralism, which is a movement that kind of looked at how things in society are created through discourse and the way that we speak about them and that there's this underlying will to power that furthers racism and sexism and patriarchy and all these things. And that is all socially constructed and it can be dismantled. And Mm. that's kind of the foundation of current secular feminism. And that's why it's very difficult to talk about male, female essence and all these things, because it's based on this whole post-structuralist theory, which says there is no essence anymore. Essence is something that confines people and it's socially constructed. And so that's kind of this between a hard and a rock place I'm in talking about feminism and saying that men and women are different. That's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Okay. I love how you said that the difference really is, is that we believe that essence is something that comes from like the inside. And then we try to navigate how to express that externally. And this feminism that you're discussing is saying that, no, that's, it's the essence you're discussing is actually an external thing that's been put on you by others. And it's not reflective of anything internal. And you just want to shed the external expressions of what you perceive to be your essence. Right. A lot of women have these questions often subtly. So a lot of people don't really explore them. And if you grow up in a Jewish environment where it's celebrated, even if you have some Nagging some internal ba- sort of, right. yeah, some internal yeah. nagging thoughts. It's not something that you're going to spend four years researching. Right. So tell us what your journey has been in life and how that led you to this. So I think it all starts when I was in fifth grade and I wanted to play football <laughs> with the boys <laughs> in the schoolyard. And they basically said, no, you're a girl. You can't play football with us. And I thought, Why? that doesn't really make any sense. I'm extremely athletic. And some of these boys are not very strong and not very good at throwing footballs. So as a young child, I kind of was raised in this notion that as a woman, I could really do anything. I think my parents really emphasized that for me. And then when I would hit situations in the world where I felt that was not being reflected back in me, I was very frustrated. And when I got to college, I happened to take like a women's studies 101 class and I was really hooked on feminism. I think part of me has to go back to this like essential masculine feminine thing. I think I have kind of a masculine way of thinking about things sometimes. And so I personally perhaps battle more with what's expected of me as a woman because I really don't like, for example, playing Plato with my son, like the minutia of day-to-day life. Like I love my son, but like the minutia of day-to-day life, I don't enjoy so much. I would much rather be in a library just reading all day. And there's this story of Professor Block, who was like a professor that was Macarve to the Rebbe. And his wife was driving him home or someone was giving him a ride home. And they said, which one's your house? And he said, I'm not sure. Usually my wife pulls in. And I was like, what? I could never do that as a woman. Be like, I don't know which one's my house because I'm Mm. just in the clouds, you know? Right. I was thinking like part of me has that kind of brain. Like I don't charge my phone ever. My phone is constantly turning off because those details are really hard for me to keep on top of. And I know I'm making generalizations here about masculine feminine ways of doing things. I don't really like small talk. Like there are certain things that I felt I had categorized as gendered and I wanted to be doing whatever the masculine side of that gender equation was. And Mm -hmm. so in college, I 
dove into feminism with like a passion because I was like, here's my answer. Like all those times where it was like, women are X, Y, Z, or you can't do this because you're a girl. I was just like, no, that's not real. I want to do anything I want to do. And all these issues I saw in the world, I felt like were something that I personally wanted to be involved with solving. And I got really into like social justice. Okay. So that's like the feminism side. Then I went on birthright when I was a sophomore and my grandfather had passed away and I was having basically an existential crisis at like 20 years old. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was really close to my grandparents. My grandfather passed away. I actually had this like prophetic dream the night before he died that someone in my family died. And I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, that's really scary. And then my dad called me and said, your grandfather passed away last night. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's really weird. Like nothing like that had ever happened to me before. I wasn't particularly like a spiritual person. Like I was into meditation-y things, but like that all of a sudden I felt that there's something beyond the world that I live in that I don't really understand. So that winter I went on birthright and all of a sudden I was exposed to this whole Jewish reality of thinking about life as a Jew. And I never had thought about this before. I was raised in like a totally secular home. And I spent basically the next four years balancing my love for Judaism and my feminist mm. interests. And it's so hard to answer this question on one foot. <laughs> like you see that my mind is going all these different directions because it's not really like a linear experience. You know, when I look back, it kind of shifts and like, different things become important. Does that make sense? Oh, interesting. Like you notice different points as significant. Yeah. Especially in this context, you know, the first thing I start talking about is playing play with my son. Obviously that didn't exist when I was 18 right. in college, right. but, but for me, it somehow makes sense that I've had this passion for understanding what gender means for my whole life. And I try to always think why, like, why is this my thing that I'm so interested in? And I, I'm not really sure. I think that Hashem gives us a shlokos, like gives us our unique mission in the world. And for some reason, this is mine. I am so moved by the way you have taken your interest and really leaned into it. Like the fact that you decided to choose a more Jewish connected lifestyle and you took along your entire self and you are you said like wrestling with it, figuring it out, you know, still figuring out what does it mean to be a Jewish woman? What does it mean to be Chava? What is my role here? And how do I reveal that essence? And at the beginning, you said something about how you think it's important to acknowledge what is uniquely feminine about you and to express that in your life. Even if you said you naturally are drawn to what would be considered more traditionally masculine. Yeah, I said, I don't want to run away from what it means to Mm. be a woman. I have this more traditionally masculine way of thinking about things and doing things. But at the end of the day, I was put into this body. And I have aspects of myself that I love that I, you know, enjoy cooking and making my home beautiful and hosting and people come over and say, Oh, your home's so nice. And you have such good food. That gives me real deep satisfaction. You know, I don't think that's like a surface level thing. I think that that's a really big part of who I am. But when it comes to being out in the world, how do I navigate the two different parts of myself? I love that. I love how you said that, that you don't want to run away from what it means to be a woman because you could live a religious lifestyle 
do everything that is quote unquote expected of you, but still have this internal conflict, which is like, I'm a little resentful about all these things I have to do. And you're doing the exact opposite. To me, it seems like instead of burying those resentments, you're actually like holding it all to the light to say, what does it really mean to be a woman, a Jewish woman? And how am I going to express that in my life? So what have you found? You brought up some sources where the rabbis spoke about being in a caris bias. You spoke about your own personal journey through feminism and your own Jewish journey, which brought you to where you are today, a Chabad woman living in Morristown, studying for a PhD in Hasidic feminism and also teaching in the Cheder. So what have you found, right? That juxtaposition, Chava, <laughs> is like, it's very unique. So what have you found about what it means to be a Jewish woman? And how are you trying to incorporate that in your life? Mm. So to go back to the Akarasa bias, what I see it meaning is that I have tremendous responsibility and impact. My actions have consequences. So whether that means on the smallest scale, like I used to meal prep every Sunday, and during the week, I'd come home from Cheder at four, and the meals would be basically done. I'd throw them together, and we would sit down as a family and eat before my son went to bed. If there was a week where I didn't fully meal prep, and then one day I came home, and the food's not ready, and I'm stressed, and I'm like running around the kitchen, and then my son feels my stress, and then my husband's hungry, and the whole night could literally spiral out of control because I didn't put in the effort in the beginning of the week. And not like that happened every time, but I felt wow, it really matters how I structure my week, the the small choices that I make, it affects my whole family. And not in like a scary, intense way, but in a way I was like, okay, this is something that I want to focus on now because I saw the consequences of not doing that. Now look at it on like the global scale. So the effort that I put into my home and I work on learning about parenting for my son, future children, God willing, and the work I put into having shown bias with my husband and all of those things that I do. And then on also my own personal mission and my shlachas of what I'm doing to impact the world, all of those things, they have this giant ripple effect. They affect everybody that the people in my home interact with my son, when he goes to school, my husband when he goes to work, me, when I'm in graduate school, the foundation I create in my house of like hopefully calm and connection and connection to Hashem and to each other, that starts having this ripple effect. And someone I spoke to, she said it beautifully. She said, a healthy Jewish home creates a healthy Jewish neighborhood, creates a healthy Jewish community, creates a healthy world <laughs> and creates a healthy omnistall for future generations. It's not even like just now, it's like the whole future of our reality. It could all come back to my shoulders and like decisions that I make. So mm really tiny decisions. And for me, this has been super, super clear in my marriage because when I first got married, I had a lot of anxiety that was kind of undiagnosed. Like I didn't realize how much I was struggling with anxiety. And my first year of marriage was really hard because I was like bringing anxious thoughts into my relationship all the time. And it caused like a lot of stress with me and my husband. And over the past four years, I started realizing that a lot of the things I was thinking just like were not true. It was anxiety. And in the Mm -hmm. past year or so, you know, I went to therapy, went to marriage counseling, with all these different things. In the past year or so, my anxiety has really been under control. And I see a huge difference in my entire life. Obviously, personally, because I'm not struggling as much with mental health issues, but just seeing my relationship with my husband, we just don't get into these big arguments anymore because I am coming from like a safe, stable place. 
And I realized that I have to really take care of myself and be aware of what energy I'm bringing to my relationship and to my home, because that's going to be what's reflected back to me. That's another one of the reasons why I want to talk about this topic, because I think that my personal experience has made it really clear to me that where, where I am emotionally, physically, spiritually, that's going to set the whole direction of my family. I like how you said a healthy home creates a healthy community, creates a healthy world. In Jewish life, a mikvah takes precedence over a shul mm-hmm. because the Jewish home takes precedence over a shul. Like the home is actually the heartbeat of Judaism more than the shul is. And in the past two years, you've really seen how all the synagogues can be shut down and Jewish life is alive and well. Mm-hmm. If the home is interested in engaging with God, if the home is interested in engaging with healthy habits, like you brought up anxiety and like a wholesome space, then that is going to be perpetuated no matter how many synagogues and yeshivas and schools are shut down. What do you think is the difference between the role a woman plays in setting the tone of her home and the role your husband plays in setting the tone of your home? So is this a uniquely feminine thing? If so, why? That's a really great question. It's hard for me to answer. I'm not really sure, honestly. I think that, like I said, if we just take approach of the world without thinking about what the Jewish approach, you would kind of say that whoever spends the most time in the home is the one who's creating that environment, right? Like Mm -hmm. if the father is home with the kids and the mother's out in the world, then isn't he the one who's there setting tone, making the small decisions, all those things. But I don't necessarily know if it's really just the amount of time you spend. I think that there's a different quality that men and women have in interpersonal relationships. And I think that's kind of what it comes down to. That's one of the reasons I brought up my experience with anxiety, because I felt like that's something unrelated to motherhood in particular. Mm. I think it's important to understand that the Karasa bias is not just about being a mother. It's also about the relationship between you and everybody in your house. Mm. But I think that for me personally, to understand this better, I really experienced it more clearly once I had my son. So like the physical experience of being a woman and what that involves is very different, creates a very different relationship between me and the people in my house versus my husband. Because first of all, the relationship I have with my son, the fact that it changed my entire life overnight, every single aspect of it was not necessarily the case for my husband. He became a father and everything changed for him. But once things settled down, I became responsible for my son in a way that I don't know. And this is really hard to say. I I don't want to like say anti-feminist things. But on the other hand, I feel like I'm speaking from my personal experience, but I also think that there's an aspect of this that just really comes from within the Rebbesichas that women have a natural warmth and a natural way of connecting in through interpersonal relationships, like you said, that has edelkite, that has this panemius. And I see it a lot with child rearing because like, for example, this morning, my son did not want to say modani and wash his hands and like do all the Jewish things in the morning. He just wanted to have kind bar because it has chocolate on it. And my husband was like, you have to do it. You have to say Moda'ani. Like if you want to treat, say Moda'ani. And I just kind of waited and like let my husband try it. And my son was like resisting. And I said, and I've learned this from a lot of people. Like I didn't come up with this obviously, but I said to him, Menachem, I think the Sahara is telling you that you don't want to say Moda'ani, but Hashem wants you to say Moda'ani. What do you think? What do you want to do? He looks at me. He's like, 
And then at the end, he said, I did what Hashem wanted. And I was like, I can't believe that worked. <laughs> like, that was incredible, you know? But I have this intuition that I think that he needs something like soft and gentle and just not so intense. And this is also in the Sikha from Parshas Noach that a masculine approach, not necessarily every man, but just I can also take this approach sometimes as a mother. And I'm like, you need to do this thing that I want you to do. Do it now. You know, it's like, it's like just that approach of, I don't really care if you want it or not. It's good for you and you need to do it. And we all have to tap into that masculine approach. But the much better and long lasting approach is the feminine approach. And the Rebbe says men and boys should learn also how to do this, which is to speak to the person so that they themselves want to do that thing. And that's the panemius approach. And when Mashiach comes, that's the only approach that's, that's going to exist because we're all going to see Hashem. We're all going to understand the internal truth of reality. Mm. So we're going to want to do good things from ourselves. But in Gullis, we have both approaches. Sometimes we just have to do things. So to go back to your question of what is the man's avoda, what does a man bring into the home? I'll just say personally, recently, my husband has really taken off with his business and I really enjoy not being responsible for Parnassa for our family. And also I really encourage him to have chabrusas during the week and to go to shul and to have like relationships in the community and like do things that fill him up spiritually. And I think that he brings all of that positive energy into the home. But for me, I don't necessarily go out to achieve those things. I feel like those things I work on for myself and I make sure that they're coming from our home rather than being brought into our home. That kind of makes sense. I also like to learn and I host classes and stuff like that. But for me, that's not necessarily because I'm going to bring that back. It fills me up. And then mm. when I'm in my house, I'm in a good mood and all those things. For my husband, he wants to say Sikha at the Shabbos table. So I encourage him, you know, during the week, like if he's tired at night, I'm like, no, go have your chavrasa. Like you'll enjoy it. And so... I think that there's this kind of revelation and essence dynamic going on and we each share in both sides of them. But in general, that's the approach. I read this article today on this secular mother's blog and the woman said, when my husband and I met and we were going to have our child, we were like, we're going to be co-parents. We're going to share everything. And then the whole article was about how it totally didn't work. And she just started taking on all the traditionally motherly roles. And she was like blaming society for it, that like mm. the workforce or the doctor or this or that, everything else. And I was just thinking like, that just doesn't ring true to me. I feel like there's a real benefit of just thinking, yeah, maybe I do have more responsibility in my home and that's going to positively impact me and my relationship with Hashem if I invest in it. Wow, there's a lot just now. <laughs> Taking it all the way back to the beginning of your answer, when you spoke about not wanting to be anti-feminist, when you said that a woman has natural warmth. And I just want to suggest that maybe sometimes some of us, and definitely those of us who have been influenced by the world's perspective on what a woman is and what a woman should be or should accomplish or should do or what her role should be, et cetera, sometimes it's like an inability to soften and that is coming from an external pressure to be more harsh and to be tougher. And you see, I've seen so many women who, as they get older, 
they begin to soften and they say, I was so resistant to motherhood and now I embrace it. I was so resistant to my traditional role as a woman and now I embrace it. I really like the way you pinpointed the differentiation between expressing essence and taking from outside and bringing it in and how there is something distinctly feminine about that. And often when we internalize external noise, we're unable to like access that essence inside of us to give ourselves permission to enjoy things that feel womanly or feel feminine. And we tell ourselves like, no, that's society telling you that you value that. And it's like, maybe I actually like this. Maybe I actually enjoy it. How do you differentiate between those two voices? Oh, like the voice of your essence yes. <laughs> and the voice of the world telling you what a woman is and should be. Yeah. So challenging. <laughs> For me, it always goes back to educating myself, to learning Hasidus, to learning Torah, to trying to find within the sources, just clear answers, you know, and then also from my own personal mentors, my mishpia, asking a rav, like, is this true or not? When after I had my son and I had postpartum anxiety and I read this article in the Dare Hair about having a large family and I'm like, do I want to not get pregnant right now? Because I just think I need more time and like, because I'm not ready and like the world tells me you're gonna have a baby right after another baby, all these things? Or is it because I actually have postpartum anxiety? And like, I should mm. wait. And this Dare Hair article just basically presented, you know, the Rebbe was opposed to family planning. And he was talking to from people saying, you shouldn't space out your children. And I called my Rev, And the Rev said, No, you should probably wait a little bit if you're still having active anxiety and all these things. And so I wasn't sure where the voices were coming from. I was really mm. struggling with it. And then the worst is when you think, is that a Hasidic Yitzhahara? Like, you're like, that's mm. a really good reason, but it's still the Yitzhahara. Like, it's still not a real, you know, so you're saying the secular world, but even within the Jewish world, you can have yeah. a thought that's not true for you personally, you know? So I, I try not to like rely on my own, my own thoughts because also my experiences with anxiety is like, I can have thoughts that are not true. And I can get really caught on those. So I go back to the Rebbe's sources. I try to think about what is a a Jewish approach. And also I like to keep, like I said, I go on this like, you know, secular moms podcast sometimes because I like to see what the articles are about and how people are speaking about things. And one of the reasons I go on it is because I like to gauge my reaction. If I read something that really bothers me, I'm Mm. like, hmm, where is that coming from? And then I kind of like sit on it and think about it a little bit, you know, like I read this thing about this woman saying, I don't play with my kids. Toys are for kids. They're not for adults. I don't play with my kids. And at first it really bothered me. I was like, Oh, what do you mean? Like you had children. What's the point of having children? If you're like, I don't play with my kids. Like I leave them at home when I go to work. And then I realized, you know why that article bothered me? Because like I said, I don't like playing with kids. I'm working the hater. What do I like? I like trying to sneak in like Hasidic stories and like saying brachas with them. And like, I like the more abstract aspect of it, but I don't like to sit on the floor and play with blocks. It's just my personality. So I had to think, why does that bother me so much? It's not because I think there's some ideal motherhood aspect of playing with your kids because I personally didn't like that, you know? Right. 
That's really good. Like when it's sitting on your heart, it, you know that there's something more there. And I like how you said that you go to the sources because Hasidus is the language that our soul speaks to us through. If we want to know what the world says, it's very easy to put on a podcast about feminism. But if you want to know what Torah says and what your soul is trying to say, then you can look to Hasidus. When you spoke about your son, saying Modani and you gave him that information about his Yetzirah and God and what they were like doing with each other. I want to credit Hannah Kalmans in here. She said that she has learned an interpretation of a woman being a Makabel as a woman reflecting back to the person that she's speaking to what is in their own essence. Mm -hmm. So when you are listening to someone and you're asking the right questions and you're really like seeing them for who they are, then you're able to truly receive them and then reflect that right back to them so they could see themselves in their truest essence and truest potential. That example with your son was such a beautiful depiction of that, of just being able to truly see him with that essence first and then reflect that back to him in a way that was so empowering and joyful to him. That's so beautiful. beautiful. What have you been finding in your research? I know you said you're still in the middle of it, so it's like hard to zoom out, but what threads are starting to like, you know, web together? So something that I realized I was not focusing on in my research is how the home basically comes up in every conversation that I have with people. It all comes back to their home for shluchas, for educators, for people living in communities, no matter what a woman's position is like within Chabad, there's this aspect of their home that comes up and how it influences different parts of their life. So I realized that I had written something about Torah study where I said, the Rebbe empowered Chabad women and Jewish women in general to study all parts of the Torah. And when I had first written my notes, I said, this is one of like the primary ways that Chabad women feel so empowered is that the right. rabbi said, you can study everything and you should be learned. And that would make, that's, that's what makes you a chassid. What is his gashra's connection with the rabbi is through learning his teachings and women have direct access to that. And so I wrote in my notes, it's not only that a woman is responsible for the home and for the children, but she also learns Torah. And I realized that I was looking at it backwards What do you Mm -hmm. mean it's not only that she's responsible for the home? The fact that she's responsible for the home is one of the reasons the Rebbe says that she has to be learned because she is responsible for the ripple effect that I said. The whole community rests on her shoulders. So when I am speaking to my son about Yitzhar and Hashem, it's because Baruch Hashem, I'm actively learning and I have that mindset of Hasidus and of connection to Hashem as like my thing that I'm trying to live with. And so when I interact with people, it flows from that. So when the Rebbe was talking about women studying Torah, you could say maybe it's a lower level because it's not like Lashma. It has like a goal, which is to influence other people. But on the other hand, how beautiful is that? That you're filling yourself up to give. So in my research, I've noticed a lot. Let me give a few examples. So one that was really beautiful is that I love doing intergenerational interviews. So I'll interview like a woman and then her mother. And then if she's Mm. like middle-aged, maybe even her teenage daughter. And I like kind of within one family get this like whole span of different experiences. And it's really cool. Yeah. So one family that I spoke to, all the women brought up this same story. And I realized, oh, this is something that in their family is like a paradigm that they live with. And it was about 
I believe the mother or grandmother of who I was speaking to. And they said that there was this tribute event to her, I think in Pittsburgh. And one of the things that was said about her by a son-in-law was that she did not influence the world by going out into the world. She influenced the world by expanding the walls of her home so the world was included in it. And I thought, wow, that's super powerful. First of all, what a beautiful statement. It's so concise and it has so much within it. And what they were saying was that, well, I, I don't know exactly what they meant. I'll just say what I understood, which is that by the home that she created, it had this like outward radiating factor that changed her community and the world at large through, you know, generations of people that were affected by her and also in in where she lived, but she didn't necessarily do it by going out into the world. Her home was like this lighthouse that just shone and affected everything. And it was interesting because the women I spoke to that are her descendants, like had, have had huge impacts on their shluchas, wherever they are. And her granddaughter actually wrote this curriculum that Shlochas used to talk about Jewish women on campus. And she talked about like going back to her mother and like having these back and forth conversations about all of these things. And I was thinking like the chain of educated women that came from the grandmother. It's so cool to see people that are really, really invested in their Yiddishkeit. And this is another thing that has come up in my conversations and my research, which is that There are people that grow up in a Chabad family that don't necessarily stay religious or connected to their Judaism. And I don't want to ignore that aspect or wash over it, but I want to think about and also not necessarily use anyone's personal example because it's a very private, emotional thing. But how do people react to that when a child doesn't have the same investment? And then also for me to look within a family, what are the factors that seem to be creating a really, really inspired next generation of Chabad women. And a lot of it is the empowerment that they feel from their mothers and from their home. And that's something that's come up a lot. So this thread of the home has been really interesting. There's a ton of other things in my research that I could talk about, but you know, we'll save that for the book. Oh my gosh. No, no, we want a little more. That's not enough. That's not enough. That was, that was a snippet, but that was not enough. Before you continue though, I think it's really beautiful that you said that the home came up so often throughout the research. And it is really a testament to the idea that home is not just home for those around us. It's also home for ourselves. That in a society currently that doesn't really value the institution of a home and of a family, to say that home is the center of all wholesome spiritual life for ourselves too, that we also need to be like, we're creating this environment for those around us and for ourselves that like you, like going back to that example of anxiety that you spoke about, which is that of course it impacted your relationship with your husband, with your child, but first and foremost, it gave you a more peaceful, loving, beautiful world to live in. So it's like really something that radiates like from such an inward place and then outward and It's so powerful to me that Yiddishkeit values that center and that essence, that strong foundation. It's the strong foundation that is the center of everything, like the center of all learning, empowerment, outreach, like the home, the home within me. Like it really made me think about how important it is to invest in my own home as well, because I know that my own home is the one that everyone else lives in too. But 
it's a really, really powerful concept to really like value that home as the center of society and the beginning of like all meaningful contribution to the world. I mean, what does Hashem want? He wants to be at home mm. in the world. Yes. There's no better feeling than like feeling when you say like, oh, I felt so at home. Why are we depriving ourselves of that as a society? Mm. I think that's what it comes down to. And you know what? I very personally, my husband and I both come from divorced homes. And I, looking back, had a very beautiful childhood. And my parents put a lot of effort into me feeling like I still was loved and had a safe place to grow up in. And my parents moved a block away from each other. Like, you know, wow. like I was really lucky. And I feel like for someone to have to go through that when I was in middle school, like my parents really put in so much effort that it should still be a good experience. But obviously I was affected. And I think that a huge thing that drew me to Judaism was going on these Shabbatones when I was in college and being in a warm home. And the family sat around Friday night and was really together. And I love that feeling. And I think mm. about that sometimes when I light Shabbos candles and I like have this custom where I just take a big breath in and then I let it out and I think now it's Shabbos. Like oh, I, once, nice. I, once I let out this breath, it's like Shabbos has descended on my home. And I think sometimes back to like all my experiences becoming from and being in all of these different homes. You know, I don't know if other people really get to experience that because I was becoming from and single for like seven years. I started when I was 21. I got married, I guess, 26. So like six years. And I spent every Shabbos in someone else's house, you know, like, wow, I was always experiencing like these different homes for Shabbos. And I saw across the Jewish spectrum, what a home feels like. And now that I have my own home, thank God, you know, I just treasure it so much. Oh, wow. That is so powerful. And when you talk, it's so obvious that it's not woman creating a home to the exclusion of all else. It's woman creating a home as a springboard for anything that comes after that. And as the safe space that nurtures the giving and as a safe space that nurtures the contribution, we need that home for ourselves and the people we love need that home. And every person in society needs to have a home where they feel safe, loved, comfortable, held, connected with God. Like those things are, they're the center of our lives and they're the things that allow us to then go out and provide meaning to the world. Gorgeous. Yeah. And that's the shift that I think Hasidic feminism brings, which is that if we're saying all of these things, there has to be someone there making that home. And if our society says that a woman's value is in her professional accomplishments and, you know, like the old cliche of like being like a man, it really undermines this whole global mission we have of creating a beautiful, healthy society. Because if we're just not prioritizing the home, and not, not just in the Jewish community, I'm talking about the, the world. And a lot of what feminism did was raise a lot of really, really important issues about violence against women and, and equal yes. pay and all these things. And, like, and that's part of why I use the term feminism, because I think it has done so much good. But at the end of the day, we lost some sort of human element of it, which is that children need families to grow up in. And someone has to be creating that. And I think mm. that the woman has a really special, unique way of doing that. And I want to say now something that's really important, which is that I'm not 
home with my child every single day and I don't want to be a stay-at-home mother necessarily. And so I think it's important to always say it's not black and white. You know, I'm not saying that women shouldn't have professional aspirations. In my research, someone said to me, there's quantity time and quality time and they have to be in balance. So for me, quantity time starts diminishing the quality. (laughs) You know, like if I'm like home the entire summer with my son and I'm going crazy because we have no structure and I have no personal time and I'm not able to do anything for myself. So the quality of that time starts changing. Interesting. But if I'm able to structure our day where he's, you know, in school in the morning and then I'm, you know, I'm working in the afternoon at the same cater, so I get to spend time with him and then we have time at night. So I'm really thinking about how do I make the quantity of time have that quality, have like quality time that we're both enjoying it. That's the investment. I'm glad that you added that. Yeah. I think that it's very much not about whether or not you're working in the home or out of the home and so much to do with where your headspace is that really leaves room for nuance, Mm. that it's not this or that, but there's so many different perspectives. And that's why when you say feminism, it's so up for interpretation, but just don't strip us of that human element of the importance of a home and the importance of people creating that home. Okay. Before I ask you for the practical, I have to ask, Okay. what is the future of your research? So right now I am compiling all of my interviews and structuring them into my dissertation. And as I go through that process, I see kind of empty spaces where I'm going to Mm. try to find somebody to speak to that can, you know, flesh out and create more nuance in my research. But the goal is ultimately to have my dissertation published into a book about Hasidic feminism. And I want it to be both academic because I would like professionally to get into the academic world and kind of challenge and create conversations about religion, feminism, women, gender, all of these things. And, mm. you know, just be a different new voice, hopefully. You're brave. Um, at the same time, I would like it to be kind of a crossover that would be accessible for a popular audience to also have the conversations that are happening among people outside of academia, hopefully be a little bit more nuanced and have some of these sources easily translated and accessible and how they exist through the lens of all the different people that I've interviewed. Nice. It's so brave to be entering into a world where many people believe that gender is truly a social construct and to say that no, in their essence, they are different. And also how lucky are we to have access to your research and to get a deeper insight into Jewish women's experiential feminine lives. Gorgeous. Ending off, what are your tips for Jewish women who are so exposed, so exposed to society's perspective on what a woman is or isn't? And if a woman really is a thing at all, truly, like if woman means something meaningful and if it's an essential thing, which of course Mm. I do believe that it is, but there's still that like subliminal messaging that we're getting all the time. So what is your advice on how to internalize and incorporate the Jewish perspective more in our own homes and lives? Okay. So I would say those kind of abstract questions of what is the woman and how do we navigate all of these things? I like to put those things on pause because I think that that's a lifelong process of coming to understand each person individually, their own place where they're comfortable with what it means for them. And like I said, it's super important to be educated and go back to sources and to not get your information from snippets on Instagram or in other places. I'm saying 
even for Jewish information, you know, go for it, like learn and secular information. A lot of people have an understanding of feminism that I think is very surface level. And there's actually a lot of nuance to feminism and depth and good things we can take from it. So I would say if this is something that interests people, they should do some research just like I'm doing. Okay. Practical tips though. I think what it comes down to being in the care of bias is really being conscious of where we're devoting our energy because that's what's going to be reflected in the rest of our lives and in our home. So I noticed for me, I started trying to say chitas again a few months ago and it really changed my day. I wake up in the morning and the first thing I look at on my phone is the Hayom Yom and say her mitzvahs and I say it out loud to my son and it just sets me off in like, you know, okay, I'm a Jew. and <laughs> like, I'm having a yeah. Jewish start to my day after I say brachas, but you know, and I am trying to incorporate davening and learning in a way that's not stressful and doesn't feel like an obligation mm. but in a way that's actually coming from me. And it was hard. I had a lot of like Itzahara resistance for a long time. And when you have a baby, then all this stuff gets put on pause. But the idea is stay connected. So for me, that meant like knowing what the Parsha is. It really bothered me that after my son was born, he was like two and a half and I didn't have another baby yet. And I didn't know what the Parsha was. I'm like, I have no excuse. You know, I want to be connected. I want to be tapped in. So sometimes I would think like self-care means going to get acupuncture, going shopping and things like that. And yeah, those things can be really important. But sometimes I would do those things and I wouldn't feel filled afterwards. I would feel kind of the same. And I would think before I went shopping, oh, this is what I need to feel better, to feel like ready for the rest of my week or something like that. But I find like with learning or having chavrusa or just having like a deep connection with a friend, certain things really fill us up. And we know that like, that's really what I need. So we have to take care of ourselves. The care of bias has to be a stable foundation. Like you said, a few times in our conversation, it starts with us. We have to know ourselves and know what fills us up so we can give to others and we can feel happy and good. Thank you, Chava. This was really meaningful. Thank you. The home is the center of the world. When homes become destabilized, society crumbles. There is a reason why we return to our homes each evening. After we have given the world our best, the way it holds us allows us to simply be so we can wake up the next morning and face the world anew. You can live in a house and not have a home. And in a world that has reduced the home to the periphery, so many people today are homeless. The three mitzvahs of a woman are Chala, candle lighting, Tara Samishbacha. Chala, the bread of the home, the food that nourishes and sustains us, the comfort food, the couch we sink into after a long day, the morning routine, the bathroom that may not be perfect, but is ours, candle lighting, the fire that lights up our homes internally, the way the emotional temperature of our childhood home creates the mirror that we hold up to ourselves all our lives, the way our internal voice illuminates or darkens our path, the way we absorb energy that builds the blueprints of our nervous systems, that soothes or aggravates us each time we return home. 
Tara Samishbacha. A woman counts her days, goes to the mikveh, immerses in pure waters. God's sanctity is welcomed into the intimacy of creation, into the spaces where no one else can see that unknowable, sacred aspect of a home. The way it allows you to access someplace deep inside you. The way you cannot articulate what it feels like to come home. A Jewish home is immersed in the intimacy of a private relationship with God. The way no young child notices their mother slipping out in the evening, but whose home is nonetheless permeated with the purity of her tefillah. The way children are kindled by nothing more than the radiant energy of a mother so deeply at home within her own soul. And the way the world is kindled by nothing more than the radiant energy of human beings at home within their own souls. The Jewish home is built on three things. Physical nourishment, emotional warmth and well-being, and something sacred, untouchable, divine. Chala, candle lighting, Tara Samashbacha, home within you, home for the ones you love, home for those you welcome into your private walls. A Karasa bias does not mean foundation of the home to the exclusion of all else. It means home as the birthing point, the incubator, the place to come back to and gather strength from. Home as the beginning of all meaningful contribution to the world. Chala, sustenance. Candle lighting, internal warmth. Mikvah, the unknowable divinity in our lives. The Jewish home is the center of the Jewish nation. The home is the center of the world. Elokai zakinina betoratcha uvimitzotecha lechaberet nishmati tamidlecha mechaber mechaber. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at humanandholy or via email at humanandholy at gmail New episodes of the podcast come out every single Sunday morning. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs>